What's up, listeners, and welcome to Fighting for Survival, the podcast meant to educate the masses on the proud heritage of African-American history, often neglected in traditional history courses. My name is Randy Bonholm, and I will be your host. Today, we're going to be talking about a controversial figure in the civil rights movement, very controversial while he was alive and a very controversial way for his demise. Today, we're going to be talking about the polarizing and dynamic American activist Fred Hampton an influential and key figure in the social reform for African-Americans in the mid to late 1960s, his uncompromising yet empathetic approach towards equality gave inspiration to many civil rights leaders to keep his dream alive. The dream of black, white, Asian, or Native American, we all deserve equality and justice. So please be sure to listen in and turn up the volume. Knowledge is power and we all have the power to promote change, like Fred did. For this next part of the podcast, I want you to close your eyes and fully capture this story. The Massacre of Monroe. The year is 1969. The internet is in its earliest stages of creation. American troops are battling alongside the South Vietnamese people for an unending fight on communism between the North and the South. Losing heavy numbers each day, America's faith in this war is slowly depleting, though Americans are still in awe. Having witnessed on live television a US American man taking steps on the moon, This created endless opportunities for our youth. If we can go to the moon, then there's no place we can't go. Most importantly, this effectively ended the space race between the US and the Soviet Union. The Manson family begins the first of their murderous spree with racial domination as their intent. They slayed the young actress Sharon Tate, ridding the world of a beautiful talent. The Mets have completed an historic upset to win the World Series. Queens, New York right now is going crazy. Fans have taken to the streets, they are on top of lampposts, beers in their hands, yelling in celebration. We are the champions! We are the champions! Yet, we move 800 miles from Shea Stadium to Chicago, Illinois, on a chilly December night. Temperatures are hovering somewhere between 30 to 40 degrees, getting warmer as nighttime approached. In Chicago's south side, at a local church, stood Fred Hampton. Freshly removed from his 21st birthday and already garnering attention not only from the U.S. but from all over the world for his commitment to the freedom of black and oppressed people. Fred is teaching a political education class, a class attended by neighborhood residents and many Black Panthers. The Black Panthers is a revolutionary political organization with the objective of patrolling African-American neighborhoods in order to challenge police brutality. As chairman of the Illinois Black Panthers, It was not uncommon for fellow party members to attend Fred's classes, then afterwards go to his apartment to speak on issues regarding the party. Blair Anderson, Ronald Doc Satchel, Harold Bell, and Mark Clark are just a few of the Black Panthers that attended Fred's class that night. It's approaching around midnight. Fred and the other Black Panthers are on their way to Fred's apartment, 2337 West Monroe Street. Immediately upon arrival, Fred is approached by William O'Neill, head of security and third in command of Chicago Black Panthers. He cheerfully addresses the other members and prepares a dinner for the Black Panther Party members. Fred, William, and the other Black Panther Party members quickly consume the food. It started getting late, and William did not plan to stay in the apartment like the other members. So William said his regards to the other members, but while leaving, he slyfully slipped something in a fresh drink and was gladly on his way out. Fred and the other Panthers retreated to their bedrooms to escape the what seemed endless day and prepare for the next upcoming day. There seemed to be no breaks for revolutionaries. It's around 5 a.m. The birds are chirping harmoniously, singing louder and frequently. 
the peak of dawn begins to rise, shadows still encompassing the neighborhood. As the sun began to rise, so did 14 Cook County police officers on their way toward Fred Hampton's first floor apartment, arrest warrant in hand. Edward V. Hanrahan, Cook County State Attorney, has given the green light to search for illegal weapons in Fred's apartment. Chicago Police Sergeant Daniel Gross is leading the other 13 police raiders on route. Mark Clark is on security duty, sitting in the front of Fred's apartment, shotgun in his lap, ready for action if it comes down to it. Shots began to light up the first floor apartment. Mark is immediately shot in the chest, dead on impact, his hand pulling the trigger, shooting into the air, as if almost reactionary. The sound of gunshots began resonating in Chicago's west side. It became clear, Fred's apartment is being raided. What seemed like an eternity, the bullets ran in for seven straight minutes. A hail of police gunfire, from rifles, a submachine gun, shotguns, and handguns. Once the shooting subsided, the police closed in strategically, blocking all exits for the Black Panthers to escape. The Cook County Police then enter Fred's apartment. Fred Hampton is allegedly found dead in his bed, according to police reports. It's alleged that the initial shootout did not initially kill Fred. The bullet instead went through his shoulder. Fred's girlfriend and fellow Black Panther Party member, Deborah Johnson, gives a bone-chilling testimony as to what occurred that fateful night. She claims she was dragged out of the bedroom, shared by her and Fred, while eight months pregnant, watching helplessly as two officers walk into the room of her child's father, hearing police officers fire two shots into the room. In total, the police fired somewhere between 82 to 100 bullets, compared to the Black Panthers, who only fired once. The lone shot that Mark Clark fired after he had been shot in the heart. The gunfight launched by the Cook County Police left two dead, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, and four other Black Panthers wounded. The surviving Black Panther members are then dragged out into the street and beaten. Each member is charged with aggravated assault and attempted murder of the officers. They were then held on a $100,000 bail. Two chairmen of the Black Panther Party killed by the Chicago police as they slept. A common ending to the repeated trend that occurs as a black or oppressed person looking for equality and justice in America. For us to truly understand the significance of his death, we must understand his beginning. So we start on a summer day in 1948 in Summit, Illinois. Fred is just a kid at this moment. And he flashed academic and athletic potential very often, having big dreams of playing for the New York Yankees someday. But ultimately, that dream faded away. Once Fred reached high school, he pushed his baseball dreams aside and began to start on his civil rights activist career at the age of 15. He organized a chapter of the NAACP, which stands for the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, in his high school. Graduating from Proviso East High School with academic honors, three varsity letters, and a Junior Achievement Award. For his next path in life, he decided to enroll in Triton Junior College in order to study pre-law. Fred realized the difficulties that African Americans faced early in his life. Seeing how much his mom would work only to get a fraction of what white people were making, or just seeing white people continue to belittle his own people and seeing his own economic conditions compared to the white race. This gave him an understanding of the system, and he desperately wanted to beat a system that was already set for us to fail. 
He studied pre-law with the hopes of gaining an understanding of the legal system to someday use it as a weapon against the police. Employing his newfound knowledge of justice into his own neighborhood, following police around the neighborhood to let them know the residents are watching their actions. He became active in the Maywood NAACP as a youth director and was appointed the leader for the West Suburban Branches Youth Council, working tirelessly to get more quality recreational facilities into the neighborhood and improve the educational resources for Maywood's impoverished areas. Fred's charisma and eloquence led to the addition of over 500 new memberships in a community of only 27,000. While organizing the youth for the NAACP, he first overheard the Black Panthers and their message, not knowing that this was going to change his life. He was attracted to the Black Panthers' 10-point program of integrating Black self-determination and elements of Maoism into their practice. Fred was immediately drawn to their principles, and as soon as he got home, packed all his things, and he decided to move downtown. As soon as Fred stepped in downtown Chicago, he immediately made an impact. Fred used his extraordinary public speaking ability to broker a non-aggression pact between Chicago's most powerful street gangs, forming next the Rainbow Coalition, a phrase coined by Jesse Jackson but brought to life by Fred Hampton. The Rainbow Coalition was a multiracial alliance consisting of black people, Puerto Ricans, and poor youths. Fred's orating skills and organizing ability allowed him to ascend the Black Panthers' rankings, ultimately becoming the chairman of the Chicago Black Panther Party. Unbeknown to Fred's knowledge, the Black Panthers nationwide were fighting against a near-indestructible foe, an enemy that has taken down countless countries and countless men in order to exercise their stronghold in society, the FBI. And slowly, the Panthers were losing leadership as the U.S. government began to meddle in all of their plans for equality amongst the people. As a result of the FBI interference, many Black Panther leaders were arrested. This ascended Fred to be next in line to be appointed the party's Central Committee's Chief of Staff, effectively marking him as a person of interest to the FBI. President Nixon now deems Fred Hampton a radical threat. It all starts with COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Program. It was a racist, clandestine FBI program targeting the entire black movement. The Federal Bureau of Investigation, in short FBI, has been battling civil rights activists and other minority leaders for years with their COINTEL program. J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, even calling the Black Panthers the most dangerous group in the United States. J. Edgar Hoover was determined to prevent the formation of a cohesive black movement in the United States. Quite honestly, he was mostly afraid of the rise of a messiah as I say in open and closed quotes, who would unify and electrify the black nationalist movement. Believing Fred Hampton could possibly fit that profile, the FBI opened the file on Fred Hampton in 1967, phone tapping Fred's mother phone in 1968 and placing Hampton on the bureau's agitator index as a key militant leader. Fearing that Fred Hampton was the messiah he envisioned that would ruin America, J. Edgar Hoover began looking for an individual to infiltrate the Black Panthers. William O'Neill was the perfect candidate. Having been arrested twice for interstate car theft and impersonating a federal officer, William agreed to the espionage in exchange for having his charges dropped and an allowance totaling to over $10,000 in total. William O'Neill ascended the ranks of the Black Panther Party quickly, almost similarly to Fred, and eventually reached the role of Director of Security and Fred Hampton's bodyguard. Months have passed since William O'Neill's hiring and the Black Panther Party were not as violent as J. Edgar Hoover hoped they would be. 
after receiving reports from multiple FBI locations around the country explaining that the Black Panthers were primarily focused on just providing breakfast to the underprivileged youth, Hoover became enraged. He wanted the world to see that the Black Panthers were a sham organization, seeking violence, not saints. Eager to show America otherwise, the FBI began planting little seeds of mistrust between the Black Panther Party and their allies, sending anonymous letters, racist cartoons aimed at alienating white activists, and even a disinformation program in order to prevent the Rainbow Coalition from forming. Though the FBI efforts were futile, they were still actively encouraging violence between the Black Panther and other various groups. Multiple murders in cities all over the U.S. occurred, including an armed confrontation between party members and the Chicago Police Department, resulting in a mortally wounded Black Panther Party member and six others arrested, all less than six months before Fred's death. In October 1969, Fred Hampton and his girlfriend, Deborah Johnson, rented a four-and-a-half-room apartment at 2337 West Monroe Street in order to be close to the Black Panther Party headquarters. In November, Fred traveled to California to speak to students at the UCLA Law Association. There, he would meet with the Black Panther Party superiors and later return to Chicago as the soon-to-be next chief of staff and major spokesman for the Black Panther Party's Central Committee. Later that same month, William O'Neill met with his FBI contracting agent, Roy Mitchell, and provided him with a detailed floor plan of Fred's apartment. Mitchell turned the information over to the state attorney's office shortly, stating there were two illegal shotguns in the apartment. Though the FBI was not directly responsible for leading the raid, Hanrahan used information from William O'Neill, a now-known FBI informant, to perform the raid. After listening to all that, you may be asking, how does that even relate to today? Well, in 1994, one of Nixon's co-conspirators in the Watergate scandal, John Ehrlichman, confirmed Nixon's racist agenda to the journalist Dan Baum. Ehrlichman told Baum that the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House directly after that had only two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. This makes you wonder. Our commander-in-chief was plotting against people who had grown tired of being oppressed. The same people that are being vilified to this day. And that explains the history of being black in America. Though the quote was hearsay, an accusation of that magnitude explains the racial tension that was escalating in the United States during that time. The nation was at its most divided since the Civil War and Fred was just one of many soldiers fighting for the equality of black and oppressed people. Sick of the unreasonable stereotypes and constant injustices, he fought to take a stand and uplifted all who felt oppressed by our country. A fight that continues 51 years after his death, and 51 years later, nothing has changed. In fact, it is tradition for local police officers to visit and actually shoot up Fred Hampton's grave. A 21-year-old who had his life cut short just based on the ideals of racism. And still, they won't let him rest in peace. As the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis proves, we still have a long way to go before we can attain anything close to justice in this country. Though Fred is not with us physically, his spirit lives in all who fights the oppressor for equality. And for that very fact, that burning flame can never truly be extinguished, at least until the injustices cease. 
We will continue to remember Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. These are all victims sacrificed by the police for no reason but for the way that they look. As a result, we will not let their memories die in vain, holding police accountable for their actions and restructuring a justice system that is designed to oppress colored people from the very beginning is the first step in a long battle towards equality for all. Thanks for listening to Fighting for Survival. Before we go, show some love for your favorite podcasts by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next week's show, where we introduce the mysterious African samurai, Yasuke. See you next week, listeners.